Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the New Evangelicals Podcast. Great to have you here with us. If you're watching on YouTube and it looks like I'm not in my upstairs loft area, that's because you're you're correct. I'm not. Um, in New Jersey, as of this recording, it's about 98 degrees in full humidity, and my AC unit upstairs cannot keep up. So I'm recording this intro downstairs in my kitchen. So welcome. Hello. This is my house. <laughs> what little you can see of it. Uh, if you're joining us on podcast, this is your first time. Thank you. Wow. Amazing. We are always humbled and honored that you would choose to hang out with us for an hour or so, especially given how many other amazing podcasts there are in the spaces that we exist in. So that means a lot. On this episode of the podcast, I want to tell you right now, if you're a theology nerd, you need to buckle up, okay? I mean, put the seatbelt on. If you're driving, you should definitely have your seatbelt on. But on this episode, I interviewed Dan McClellan. He is, I've been following him on TikTok and, and uh, Instagram and Twitter for a while. His videos, I've just never seen anything like it. I'm just being honest with you. He is so knowledgeable. Um, and it is just, when it comes to the biblical culture and context and the texts of the Bible. I mean, this guy is a, is a bona fide linguistic scholar, okay? So we went deep. I asked him questions I've always been wondering, and I'm just letting you know, listen carefully, because Dan, he knows what he's talking about, and he just gives great insight um, on the Bible and and, and, and what's happening uh, in in the writing process and in the formation of the scriptures. So for me, this was a real treat. You know, we do our best to help people explore the Christian tradition outside of their own evangelical heritage. And this is one of those episodes where you're just like, wow, never knew about, about this, whatever it is that you're going to hear in this episode. So buckle up. Here we go. That being said, of course, want to give a major shout out to our sponsors, Mad Priest Coffee. We love them. I'm drinking them right now. They're in this cup that I'm holding up to the camera. Um, they are hilarious. They critique evangelical culture so well. They make the great, delicious uh, coffee. Dang it. I said it again. I keep on saying make. They roast. They roast delicious coffee. And they are located in Chattanooga. Chattanooga. There you go, people. I, I get feedback every single time. Tim, you're not saying it right. It's more D, not T. Okay. Chattanooga. It's Chattanooga, Tennessee. That's where they're located. They make great. They roast great coffee. Um, and they also fund great causes. They're helping to fight the war on drugs. They resist Christian nationalism. So go to their website, go to madcreasedcoffee.com, pick up some coffee, pick up some merch, type in the promo code TNE20 and check out, get 20% off your order. Come on, that's not a bad deal. The other big piece of news is that we are going to Trip Fuller's Theology Nerd, Homebrewed Theology, Homebrewed whatever, Theology, Beer Camp, Podcast, wow, God Pod Edition. A little tongue-tied there, but it's true. We are hanging out with Trip Fuller, with Brian McLaren, with Dr. Robertson, Hender, uh, with Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza. I'm all over the place today, friends, but I'm not going to edit this. I'm a human being. I make mistakes, okay? So the point is that we're hanging out with some amazing people. Adam Clark will be there. I mean, people that we've, we've had on the podcast and also other amazing podcasts will be there. Kevin Garcia will be there. Dan Koch will be there. Trip Fuller will be there. Go to our, our link in our show notes. Type in TNE. Get 50 bucks off your ticket. Hang out with us. It's October 13th through 15th. Noah, our producer, is coming with me. It's going to be a great time. So just make it happen. And of course, friends, as always, if you like our show, please consider supporting it. That would mean so much. So 
the New Evangelicals is a nonprofit organization. Underneath that, we do this podcast. So funding us helps fund our work that we do on podcasts. It helps make our interviews happen. It helps get our production together and also helps other people find out who we are and hopefully offer them help in ways outside of the evangelical tradition, still faithful to the way of Jesus. So if you want to support us, you can go to the link in our show notes. We are a nonprofit. All donations are tax deductible. We don't do Patreon. We don't do bonus episodes behind a paywall. It's all free because of supporters like you. So thank you. And of course, if you can support the show by sharing it and getting this episode out there, that would mean so much. Okay. I think I've ranted enough in this intro and that's all I have to say. So great having you here. Here's my interview with Dan McClellan. Buckle up. Here we go. All right. Well, um, Dr. Dan McClellan, it is honestly an honor to have you on. I uh, discovered your work through Joe Lumen. I binged your TikTok, and I'm I'm an older person now. I'm in my my <laughs> mid thirties almost. I'm not on TikTok for fun, and your stuff was great, and I watched so much of it. So thank you for making time and coming on. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. I appreciate the invitation. Absolutely. Um, I, I want to start here just for the audience. Can you kind of give us what do you do for work? Because honestly, in your videos, you tend to really cover so many topics and I'm like, what is the, what doesn't this guy know? So we'd love to kind of know what do you specialize in right now? So, um, I work as a linguist right now. Uh, my title is uh, sacred materials, translation supervisor, scripture translation supervisor for the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And obviously I'm not here as a representative of my employer in any way, shape or form. So this is all my, right. uh, <clears throat> my own opinions. Um, you'd be surprised how many people, uh, think uh, I'm, I'm actually uh, trying to represent my employer. Um, and I, I basically supervise the translation of uh, Latter-day Saint scripture in, from English into other languages and also uh, the revision of um, Bibles into other languages uh, for use by the membership around the world. And, and that's based on some of my um, educational background in cognitive linguistics. Um, so that's been that's been very helpful for that. And then my work experience has also uh, exposed me to a lot of different cultures, a lot of different languages, uh, and a lot of different research that have, I think has uh, amplified, uh, enriched uh, my academic uh, experiences. So gone from uh, two master's degrees, one in Jewish studies, one in biblical studies, and then my PhD, and uh, which was focused on the cognitive science of religion and cognitive linguistics. To now, uh, a lot more um, kind of linguistic field work, which has been quite a lot of fun. Well, in some of your videos, when you get into the nitty gritty of this and that in different languages, I am just like, wow. I mean, I I wish I could interpret half of this, but it is like making <laughs> you really. But it makes you really think of just how complicated this work of even trying to understand the Bible. Uh, it really, really gets you know. And I have to ask, what got you into this work? I mean. Were you just always into linguistics, uh, uh, linguistics, or one day you just woke up and said, I want to do this? Um, I wasn't always into it, although I did always have 
I was always curious about the ancient world. I remember as in uh, in grade school being fascinated by ancient Greece and Rome and Egypt and, and things like that. And uh, I, re- I still remember an activity when in fourth or fifth grade where they showed us some Egyptian hieroglyphs and then said, let's say this represents this letter and then showed us this jumble of hieroglyphs and we had to try to decipher it. And I thought that was a really fun puzzle. Um, <clears throat> when I was 20 years old, I was baptized as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And a year later, I left to serve as a missionary for two years. Mm -hmm. And I had never really read uh, the Bible before that, certainly not uh, any of the um, specifically Latter-day Saints scriptures. Mm. And so, in that year, I was like, I really need to dig into this or I'm going to be the least informed missionary out there. Um, And so, so, I read through the entire what we call standard works in that year. Uh, and and really enjoyed um, digging into uh, a lot of the literary and historical backgrounds of what was going on, particularly the Bible, but also the Doctrine and Covenants and, and early Latter-day Saint church history. Uh, and then I got out into the mission field and, and actually discovered that I was far better informed than most of the other missionaries out there. But a, a member one day um, gave me two things as, as gifts, a... Um, a Spanish translation of the Bible, a Catholic version, so it had the Apocrypha in it, and then a Bible dictionary. And both of them were in Spanish, but um, I fell in love with reading the Apocrypha, the books of Maccabees, uh, some of these other texts were just history I had never known anything about and was fascinated by. And then the Bible dictionary uh, helped me understand uh, a lot more of, of that background. And there was a chart, a table, actually, I found in the Bible dictionary that showed the um, ancient Hebrew letters, and then their uh, modern Latin equivalents. And I was like, oh, if I had a, a Hebrew text, I couldn't decipher it, but I could at least figure out how it was supposed to sound more or less. Hmm. And I ran across a page from a Hebrew Bible, one of the Psalms, I think. And so, I photocopied it and, uh, and kept it with me and basically spent months trying to decipher what this text sounded like. Uh, and decided I wanted to teach myself ancient Hebrew and ancient Greek and did an awful job of it on my own. But uh, I, I fell in love with studying other languages, studying other cultures. I, I found out I had a, a, a bit of an affinity for it. I could pick up languages and I really enjoyed getting to know uh, people from other cultures. And when I came home from Uruguay, I uh, found a program at Brigham Young University called Ancient Near Eastern Studies and, and figured if I could go on to graduate school and, you know, study the ancient world and the scriptures for a living, that would be about the coolest thing in the world. And, um, you know, there've been a lot of bumps and um, things along the way and tangents and things haven't gone as I've planned, sure. uh, but I have, I have enjoyed it. And um, I look forward to a lifetime of, of trying to understand even better, uh, this bizarre world that we reconstruct when we read the Bible. Yeah, you know, thanks for sharing all that. It, it is so fascinating because I, I'm sure you're, you're well aware of this explosion that's happened, a lot of people kind of leaving uh, fundamentalist spaces um, in different ways. And I, I'm one of those people who really grew up, you know, I was homeschooled for nine years, grew up very fundamentalist, a very John MacArthur, the Bible said it, God, you know, uh, the Bible says it, God said it, that settles it kind of thing. Um, you know, and so for me, um, coming out of that over the past maybe, you know, decade or so gradually, but then really exploding over the past few years, one of the major 
linchpins for that for me was really realizing that the Bible is way more complicated uh, for so many reasons uh, in culture and context and language and translation than, than maybe the black and white binaries I was given of, hey, you read the Bible through this particular theological framework, and this is all the Bible is, and we've already made sense of everything as long as it fits in this framework. And then I discover people like you, or I always say people like the Bible Project, Tim Mackey, and they just have these these knacks for kind of being like, well, well, you know, like there's more going on here. You know how you know Genesis one is really a repeated theme throughout uh, the, the the Torah and, and even the Tanakh in a lot of ways. And all of a sudden, you're like, oh my gosh, I never realized that. So I'm happy to have you here because I, I've had a burning question that I want to start off with that okay. really for quite a long time has really perplexed me. Um, when we read, especially in in like the Exodus narrative, for example, or in, in when when uh, when God is giving the Levitical law to to the Israelites, we read a lot of "and then God said," and then God said. I've always wondered. I mean, what exactly does that mean? Like, is God speaking? Because I've always pictured it like this: God speaking in an audible voice to Moses, and there's some guy with a chisel, just kind of like chiseling. Down, you know? <laughs> like, all right, God said this. So when when we see those the, those words, I think we take them for granted based on how a lot of us were taught to read this. Oh, God must have verbally said, like, I'm talking to you, go do this. Is that what's happening in these stories when we see the the, the, the name God and then God said? Is that what's happening here or is there more going on? I think there are two layers to this. The first is the anthropomorphism of the folks who are responsible for the production of the biblical text. And uh, the God of Israel was thoroughly anthropomorphized. So conceptualized as human-sized, human-shaped, located in a specific point in time and space. And so when it says, and God said this, that, or the other, they, they are understanding the deity to be um, audibly uh, speaking. And when they talk about the deity having hands, having a backside, having feet, all these kinds of things, that's how they conceptualize uh, deity. Now, the other aspect of this is, is the literary aspect. Why are they writing it the way they are? And there are a handful of different genres that are, that are taking place. And sometimes we have different understandings of, of what's going on. We tend to presuppose that we're getting kind of an official transcript uh, of right. what's going on. Right. And so the imagery that we're conjuring up in our heads is, is somebody like, where's that voice coming from? Exactly. And, exactly. and in a lot of cases, they're telling a story about um, somebody, uh, a, an anthropomorphic figure physically visiting and interacting with someone. So when we, when we have uh, Abraham talking to God, Moses talking to God, Hagar talking to God, uh, Gideon talking to God, Joshua talking to God, that when these texts were written, they were probably anticipating that the people hearing them uh, or reading them were going to be conjuring up images of two people talking to each other. Um, and there's some, there's some poetic places where that's not exactly what's going on. It's probably a little more, um, a little more obscure than that. But in some ways, they're intentionally obscuring it because they don't want uh, a very clear idea of, of how exactly God is interacting. And it depends on what time period these texts are coming from as well, because there's a changing understanding of God's nature. Uh, as you get into the exilic period and the post-exilic period, uh, where the Israelites and the Judahites are face-to-face -face with these other cultures and their deities, 
there is a desire to escalate, to amplify the God of Israel over and against these other deities. And so exalt the deity higher and higher, further away from humanity. And so there comes a point at which the deity is now saying, you didn't see me in the fire. You only heard my voice, but I was all the way up in heaven. And this is the Deuteronomist representing the deity as their, their self being located in heaven. But uh, the fire that's the pillar of fire in the temple is, is kind of their intercom system um, where they're hearing the voice out of, uh, out of that fire. Uh, and so that also creates this need to do something with the text they have inherited from their past that say Moses talked with God face to face. And um, one of the things that they do is uh, they uh, interpolate or insert a messenger, the angel of the Lord. So in a, in a, in a lot of places where you have individuals talking with an entity that alternatively is, is uh, described as the messenger of the Lord or as God themselves. Right. So Exodus three, you have uh, Moses in the burning bush and it says in verse two, the messenger of Adonai appeared in the fire in the flame of the bush. The entire rest of the chapter is God themselves. Even saying, I think in verse five or six, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Hmm. So initially, this was probably a story about God themselves appearing to Moses. And somewhere along the way, a scribe scratched in Malach, messenger, before the name. And this was a way to kind of obscure what's going on. Now you've got this convoluted story. Is it a messenger? Is it God? Is the messenger representing God? Uh, and so I've argued in uh, a couple places on TikTok and in the book that I, I have coming out at the beginning of next year hmm. that they had to come up with a way to kind of theologically accommodate this, these convoluted identities. And Exodus 23 is where I suggest they come up with an answer. So here is where uh, God tells the Israelites, I'm sending my angel, my messenger before you. Uh, he will guide you in the way. Don't disobey him. Don't tick him off because he does not have to forgive your sins. And then he said, uh, then the text says, because my name is in him. And so what I've argued is that the name here, the divine name is a vehicle for divine agency. And when an entity has been authorized to carry, to deploy the name, they're basically exercising God's power and also God's presence. So this is a way to say, that's why the messenger said, I am God to Moses, because the messenger had God's name and could say, see, here's my name. Um, and this was a way to maintain this exaltation of God. God's really way over here, but the name is in the temple. The name is carried by the messenger. Uh, the name is in the text of the law. And so God's presence is still accessible to us through uh, the mediation of the divine name. And, and so this is kind of a, a later development in how they wanted to interact with, uh, with the presence of God and the, and the person of God. But fundamentally, the deity is still based on an anthropomorphic idea. Um, until you have the philosophical frameworks and the institutions to not only create a more complex theological constellation of ideas about the deity and then 
impose and enforce them, which requires those social institutions, people are going to be reverting back to what's more intuitive, what's easier to remember, easier to understand. And for humans, that's humans. We un- that's how we understand best. That's how we think about uh, agents. And so this is one of the reasons we anthropomorphize science, uh, talk about science as, as if it had agency, as if it did stuff and wanted stuff. Uh, people talk about evolution as if it's an agent. We talk about the state as if it is an agent. We have Uncle Sam. We have Lady Liberty. We have the invisible hand of the economy. Um, all of these complex ideas, uh, in order to make them easier for us to think and talk about, <clears throat> we reduce them to what comes intuitively to us. And humans are the most intuitive thing for us to think about. So the deity gets framed or gets projected through that intuitive filter. And that's what comes out on the other side. So, okay, great. Um, audience, I recommend uh, re-listening to that whole section again. There's so much there. <laughs> and and that, that, that's a good thing because, again, you, ha- you have to understand, I, I know that you know this, but I want to repeat it for the audience. So many of us just grew up thinking like, you just look at it this way. Like you can't approach it from any other viewpoint of, this is the reformed framework. This is the Calvinist framework. This is the whatever it is. I mean, that's just how a lot of the people that we interact with, that's what we're coming out of. It sounds like what you're saying is that, and tell me if I'm wrong, please. You have all permission in the world to tell me, Tim, you're way <laughs> off. That, 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 that how we conceptualize God has developed over time. And we can even see that happening in, you know, the Torah uh, and kind of throughout the scriptures as even the scribes are kind of making adjustments to how they would view God in their cultural moment. Is that kind of correct? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Because when we look at the scriptures, they don't have any inherent meaning. We negotiate the meaning between them, between our circumstances, but also between our needs, what's going on, what we hope for for the future. And so as our needs change, the lenses that our experiences give us through which we are interpreting our sacred past whether it's tradition, uh, whether it's liturgy, practice, or the scriptures, it's going to evolve. It's going to change along with those, with those lenses. And so this is why, you know, you have, before the exile, uh, the God of Israel was confined to Israel. Every nation had their own deity, and that deity's purview was limited to the boundaries of their nation. And so you go beyond that nation, you owe allegiance to whatever deity is the patron over that nation. And your own deity, your own deity is not really there for you. Um, And so a a deity can make incursions into another deity's purview and like go try to conquest. Uh, And you see this in a bunch of places in the Hebrew Bible uh, where um, you have an Israelite talking with the uh, Ammonites saying, you keep what your deity Chemosh has conquered for you, and we're going to keep what our deity, Adonai, has conquered for us. Uh, you have uh, Naaman, the Syrian, uh, after he's healed. He wants to worship Adonai back in Syria. Uh, he says there's no God in all the earth except for in Israel. So how is he going to worship the God that is located in Israel back in Syria? He takes two cartloads of Israelite soil with him. Mm. He's going to take a piece of Israel with him so he can worship. Uh, you have Saul pursuing David, 
And there's a part where he's uh, right by the borders of Israel. Saul's going to push David outside of Israel as, as part of this pursuit. And David says, you're forcing me to worship other gods. Because once he's outside of Israel, he's not in Adonai's territory anymore. Um, so there are a handful of different ways this idea is reflected. But then you have the exile. And all of a sudden, all the Judahites are now in Babylon. And the deity's way over there. So what can they do? And you have the psalm. Uh, how can we sing the songs of Adonai in a foreign land? Mm. And this is where you've got to renegotiate your understanding of the deity. And so now we see Psalm 82 as a way to engage in this renegotiation. Um, the exile was a violation of uh, Judah's sovereignty. It rocked the foundations of the earth. And so you have God stands among the gods to judge them. How long will you... Um, choose uh, wickedness and uh, show favoritism to um, the wicked. The deity is condemning the gods of the nations for allowing this to happen and then condemns them to mortality. You will uh, fall like any prince and die like uh, any human. And then the psalmist in the very last verse calls on God, rise up, Kuma Elohim, for you will inherit all nations. In other words, we have deposed the patron deities of the nations, and the nations now stand ready for you to take over direct rule. And this is a way to say, we may be in Babylon, but up in heaven, the God of Israel has taken over direct rule of all the nations. And so now we can worship our deity where we are in Babylon. We can access the divine presence uh, outside of the land of Israel. So they renegotiate their understanding of uh, the limits of God's purview, and that we refer to that as the universalization uh, of the God of Israel. So I, I think we're still doing this in a lot of different ways. You see a lot of folks uh, engaging in the different debates between different social groups about what God is, right. and they're renegotiating how they think about the deity to make the deity still meaningful. Because if the, if God were still a geographically limited storm deity like they were in the bronze age and in the iron age would be totally meaningless and totally useless to most christians today uh we've had to renegotiate the deity in order to keep them relevant right but i see for, for my context it was not communicated that way right <laughs> right, right to me was that it was that it was that the God that we serve is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that we have to stand on God's unchanging word, aka the Bible. But as you're talking, I'm just putting this in my own, you know, my own context and how I grew up, and I'm realizing that like the, these things are at odds. So what do you say to yeah. someone, maybe like, you know, uh, me 20 years ago, who would say, Well, Dan, I mean, but the God I serve is the same yesterday and today and forever. We have to stand on God's unchanging word, the Bible. What do you say to someone like that when, when, when I know you hear these things often, how do you respond to that maybe charitably, but also in your own way based on what you know? Well, I think I, I try to help people understand that all of these representations of deity serve somebody's interests. Hmm. They are usually um, done in the interest of, of structuring power in some way. <laughs> structuring values, structuring boundaries. Yeah. Uh, it is a way to curate the way uh, the 
the boundaries of the institutions that are involved with whatever group we're talking about. And so maybe, you know, and, and the Reformation is a good example of this. There are a lot of change the understanding of, of deity um, and scripture and other things because there were upheavals uh, in the geopolitical world. Uh, we just got, or they just got done with um, the uh, the Crusades, you know, lost some, some property to... Uh, to Islam, there were a lot of issues with how they understand their relationship to these peoples. We're starting to discover uh, other societies, well, not discover, but becoming aware of other societies around the world. And uh, a lot of uh, princes did not like that the Catholic Church exercised state authority. And so there were a lot of different power structures uh, involved in making the Reformation successful because... Without them, the, the Reformation likely would not have been uh, very successful. But you can look at the big developments in theology and the understanding of the Bible and of deity, and you will pretty much always find some big social upheaval uh, going on. And so I don't try to, to uh, totally annihilate someone's understanding of deity but I would like them to think a little more critically about whose interests are being served by these things hmm. uh, and, and try to figure out if there's a way they can refocus how they think about deity on their own interests and on the interests of the people around them. Are they promoting a view of deity that subjugates others, that centers a privileged group and pushes an, uh, an underprivileged <laughs> group to the margins. Is that a harmful way to conceptualize deity? Or are they thinking about the deity in a way that is inclusive, that is including other people? That might be a more helpful way to think about deity. There was some research that was done a bit ago that looked at monotheistic concepts of deity and the relationship of those beliefs to uh, groups uh, as either being antagonistic towards outgroups or being more cooperative with outgroups. Mm. And what they discovered is the more that a group focused on the practices and the institutions and the boundaries of their religious identity, the more antagonistic they were towards outgroups. Whereas the more the group focused on their relationship with this deity and the deity's uh, interests and, and priorities uh, and moral framework, the more cooperative they were with outgroups. And so I, I would love for people to think a little more critically about what kind of deity they are being asked to believe in or they are asking other people to believe in. Is it one that's going to increase competition and conflict or is it one that's going to increase cooperation? Hmm. And and I think that's a that's a species of, of deconstruction, mm. um, and deconstruction doesn't all doesn't necessarily always lead to um, you know abandoning faith. Uh, right. Many folks are deconstructing so that they can reconstruct in a more productive manner. Yeah. Uh, and and I think I think that's a, a good way to approach that if that's somebody's goal. Yeah, you know, what we say often is that the people that we work with, and even myself, you know, we're not having a crisis of faith where it's like, do I believe in God or not? It's really a crisis of theology. What do I believe about God? <laughs> you know, what have I been taught about 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 who this God that I'm supposed to be following is? 
And mm. I think a lot of people are really hungry just for finding better paths forward that, that, you know, maybe, um, like you said, are, are a little more, we think a little more critically about, you know, God and, and, and also how does this God lead us to love others or exclude others? Mother's Day is coming. And if you don't get mom the perfect gift, she won't be angry, just disappointed. So go with drinks from Drizzly, the go-to app for alcohol delivery. Send favorites near, far, or to wherever the moms in your life are. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com and get the best drinks to the best moms and plenty of time for Mother's Day. Ding dong, it's Drizzly. Must be 21 plus. Not available in all locations. I've noticed that that you use the word deity over God. Is that a habit or is that intentional? Um, It's a bit of a habit. When I wrote my doctoral dissertation, one of the things that I wanted to do was slaughter as many sacred cows as I could (laughs) related to scholarship about deity. And so... There were, there were a handful of things that I did. One, I uh, deconstructed the concept of religion. There was a chapter that, that I ultimately had to pull out and just kind of briefly summarized in my introduction. But I said, religion didn't exist in antiquity. And so I'm not going to use the word religion at all to discuss what's going on anciently. Right. Um, I said, I'm going to use gender neutral pronouns in reference to deity and I'm also going to use a general neutral way to refer to deity. Deity is gender neutral. God, goddess are gendered uh, nouns. And so uh, it would, became a habit of mine to refer to deity instead of uh, God. And I'm not, I'm not totally unilateral about it. I, I will go back and forth. But deity comes a little more natural to me as a result of spending five years of my life uh, uh, kind of uh, programmatically uh, using deity and, and instead of God. And, you know, that, that, uh, a, a lot of people appreciate that. A lot of people, it really annoys them. Um, <clears throat> in fact, I, I published a paper in the journal of biblical literature in 2018, where I did that. I, I said, I'm going to use gender neutral pronouns in reference to deity. And the editors came back and said, it gets kind of confusing in places. This isn't really our standard. Can you just use gendered pronouns? And I said, fine, I'll do it. But I'm putting in a footnote at the beginning saying, basically, I was I was forced to do this. <laughs> you were strong a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so you, you made a provocative statement there. Religion did not exist in, in, twi- uh, in antiquity. Again, yeah. you know, I'm just I'm just going to talk from, from how, what I grew up being taught. You know, uh, Judaism is a religion. Uh, you know, religion over relationship, et cetera, right? We have to <laughs> kind of get past that. Um, what do you mean when you say that religion did not exist in antiquity? Isn't, isn't Judaism a religion, et cetera? So, um, religion is another concept a lot like our conceptualization of deity. It's not anchored to anything in the world. It is Hmm. created through our discourse. Uh, And so, it changes as the needs of of the discourse change. Uh, And so, when scholars for, for several decades now have noted that the word that we use, religion, uh, comes from a Latin root, religio. And when we look at the way that root was used, uh, anciently the Greco-Roman period into the medieval period, medieval Christianity into the Renaissance, the Reformation, it was never used the way we understand religion today. And there were no other words anciently that match the semantic package that we label religion today. 
<clears throat> so in, uh, if you go look at ancient Roman authors, when they use that word, they refer primarily to a kind of scrupulousness, uh, where it refers to kind of internal anxieties about uh, adequately performing behaviors involving your relationships with other people. So basically doing what's socially expected of you in your relationships with other people and with the gods. So um, scrupulousness would be like the most generic way to gloss, to translate the word religio anciently. Uh, and so, you know, people, there's a, um, there's a poem where, or a play, a comedy, where somebody says, I was invited to dinner and I could not turn them down because I had religio. So I went to, to dinner with them. And that's an example of, my scrupulousness, my fidelity to what's expected socially of me required that I accept this invitation to dinner. Uh, and into the medieval period, you have uh, Augustine says that he doesn't think of Christianity as a religion because while it can have to do with our relationship with God, it also just has to do with ordinary relationships with people. And so Augustine said Christianity is not a religion. Hmm. When you get into um, Orthodox Christianity, the Catholic Church, a religion was just your monastic order. If you belonged to the priesthood, you were either a secular priest or a religious priest. And if you were a religious priest, that meant you were a member of a specific order. You were, um, uh, you know, a um, Benedictine or you were a member of some other order. And so within... Catholicism, you could be a priest who was a member of one of any number of different religions, or you could be a secular priest. Uh, so those two concepts, secular, religious, have nothing to do with how we use them today, or these are very different from how we use them today. And this concept of kind of this internal impulse was still around. And when you get into the Crusades, you have a couple of folks like Nicholas of Cusa um, and some others who are trying to bridge the gap between Christianity and Islam. They see all the wars going on, Constantinople falls in the 15th century. And while most folks are trying to vilify and demonize Islam as this aberrant, perverse set of traditions, these more humanist Renaissance thinkers rationalize a way to think of Islam as to try to unify us. And so what Nicholas of Cusa says is that these are not a variety of religions. And at this period, the religion was whatever rites or behaviors reflected your relationship with, with God. He says, religion is the innate impulse to worship God. And it is just shined through your different cultural filters. And so uh, I, I, I can't remember exactly how it's uh, normally translated, but he said something along the lines of, uh, these are all just different rites reflecting the one single religion. Hmm. The idea being, we're all at, we're all this doing the same thing underneath, uh, and we just happen to grow up in different parts of the world, and so we are reflecting this impulse differently. And this is how, and re the Reformation picks up this idea of religion as this internal impulse to then say, therefore, the priesthood cult. Um, all these different uh, icons, the use of material media for worship, all of these are no good. 
these don't fit with what true religion is. And you have this idea of true religion that starts up in the Renaissance, so, or the Reformation. So it's really the Renaissance, the Reformation, and then the Enlightenment that turns religion from this just generic uh, scrupulousness regarding how you interact with others to this uh, impulse to worship God into the specific set of beliefs and practices related to deity. And so when we think of religion as a set of beliefs and practices or a system of beliefs and practices related to deity, that is a concept that was developed in the Renaissance, the Reformation, and the Enlightenment. Very fascinating. Oh, sorry, I don't cut you off. Go ahead. uh, And I'm just going to say, now we can see the constituent elements of this. Yeah. People had systems of worship. People had beliefs about deity. We can see these constituent elements in antiquity. Judaism very clearly did anciently what we think of a religion today as. However, they never called it that. And so when we draw a boundaries around what they're doing and say that's religion, that can be distorting because it takes all of the other stuff that we associate with religion and it imports it into antiquity and we assume that the whole package goes with it. And in reality, it doesn't. So when people talk today about Judaism as an ethnic religion or an ethno-religion, they're reflecting the fact that it doesn't fit neatly into our box of what religion is. Because back anciently, it had more to do with the conventions associated with a certain ethnic group. And so you might think today, you know, uh, uh, you might think of things like in certain parts of the country, we refer to, you know, you might go to a restaurant and you say, I'll have a Coke. Great. What kind? Sprite. Um, or in another place, they might call it pop. Right. Or in another place, they call it soda. Like if, if one of those conventions became like an identity marker for a social group, and they develop firm boundaries. That could be, you know, in a thousand years, they could be like, yes, that was their religion. <laughs> because right. they, they're, um, you know, it's, it's complex, but in, in brief, the, the idea is that we should not import these conceptual frameworks um, onto a society where there's no evidence that they arranged them that way. So, that was my, my, the second chapter I originally had in my dissertation was, you know, a, a 15,000 word um, <laughs> way of saying all that, that I then had to cut out. But uh. <laughs> Well, it's really helpful because as you're talking, I think what you're bringing up that's so important is that, is that language is trying to communicate things and that language does change over time and meaning changes. I mean, like, for example, a big thing I hear now in my circles is orthodoxy. You know, mm-hmm. oh, you know, the new evangelicals don't believe in orthodoxy. You know, okay, like what is, or, like what are you referring to? You know, and then like, and often I hear, well, the Nicene Creed, and I'll be like, well, I, I affirm a lot of that personally, but it doesn't. Have, but the Nicene Creed says nothing about sexuality, nothing about hell. You know, but then all of a sudden it turns out orthodoxy is really all these other things for those people, right? And so, it, can you kind of talk about how? Because it seems like this is like what you really specialize in like, linguistically, language, right? Like, like. When we are saying words, right, and, and we're trying to, to use words to try to communicate, I guess, past, tru- past truths almost, or you kind of made it, I'm trying to rephrase what you said in, in, in a nutshell, but you, you brought this point that like when we use the term religion, 
we're really boxing in potentially something that really we have no cultural context for. So we're using our context to kind of import it in the past, but we yeah. kind of bring our baggage there. Is that kind of correct? So yeah. is, is that like what, when we use language to try and describe the divine or, you know, what we think God is doing or things like orthodoxy, I think that I was taught that like these are all static, like like the way Moses in the Bible sees religion and and God, and God is the same way that we see religion and God now. But what you're saying yeah. is like, no, because things change. Like you can't stop change and definitions from happening. Am I on the right path here? Yeah, absolutely. Because um, language fundamentally is, uh, well, let's see, Wittgenstein used to talk about <laughs> language games, that using language is always a game, that we're playing with other folks and we, you know, assume they know the rules and for the most part we get by. Right. But the rules are not written anywhere. We're just kind of, in a, there's a degree to which we're making them up as, as we go along. And when we draw, and this doesn't just happen in religion, um, you know, when, when people talk about like the word racism, this is this is something I've I've researched quite a bit because it's fascinated and horrified me at the same time. Mm. But the word racism, when people uh, try to assert a definition for it, you know, they'll say this is what the dictionary says, and it's very generic, and it can it's can go in many different directions. It's not directional, but if you look at how the word racism was used prior to the civil rights movement, I have never found in literally ten years of keeping my eye out for this and looking for it, I have never found a use of the word racism that has to be interpreted as a reference to somebody being racist against a white person prior to the civil rights movement. It was always a reference to the socially and politically powerful, um, subjugating, denigrating, marginalizing the socially and the politically uh, less powerful. It always was there was always a directionality associated with it. But when we came to try to define it, to reduce it to a short list of necessary and sufficient features, we just said, well, it's prejudice based on the color of skin. Mm. But that removes the directionality. Right. And that weaponizes it. And when uh, in the civil rights movement, when white folks got really sensitive about being called racist, what do they come up with as a, as a retort? Well, you're being reverse racist. Right. Because they recognize there's a directionality to racism. So you're being reverse racist. Right. And then later on, they were like, that's not helping. Let's just say you're being racist against white folks. And so today you will, you will hear that a lot because they can appeal to the dictionary and the dictionary usually does not indicate a directionality. And so that's a way that saying this is what the word has to mean or officially means or something like that. That's a way to deploy that, to operationalize it in the service of one's identity politics, drawing lines around things. And, and this happens in, in religion as well. And orthodoxy is one of the ways to do this because it is a way to draw a line around a group and say, we expect you to signal fidelity to our group by agreeing, assenting to, a list of propositions right? or by performing a set of conventionalized behaviors or something like that. Right. And uh, we call this costly signaling uh, or credibility enhancing displays. And what it is a, a way to do is a way to maintain social cohesion. 
say, I, I've never met this person before, but I am expecting them to do a certain number of things to show me that they can be trusted, that they are a faithful member of the group. Mm. And so the Nicene Creed is one of those ways to do that, where you put on display your fidelity to the standards of the group. But what does that serve? That serves boundary maintenance. It serves identity politics. It's that aspect of religiosity that is focused on the institutions or on the social cohesion or on the boundaries. Um, And one, there's some interesting research that uh, was done many years ago, and and it's popped up in different ways uh, within the cognitive science of religion, but orthodoxy is not really, is very, very rarely a sincerely held belief. In the cognitive science of religion, we differentiate between factual belief and what we call credence beliefs. And the credence beliefs are more like things that are situationally emergent and that we assent to, to serve some kind of rhetorical end, more than that we have internalized and fundamentally believed. Whereas factual beliefs are things that are, are a little more innate. And an example of this is how people think about God. There was a researcher who brought in a bunch of people and asked them a bunch of questions. What are your beliefs about God? And, you know, a lot the majority of the Christian folks rattled off the pretty standard Nicene-style things. And then they said, great, set that aside. And then they shared with them some short stories about a supercomputer, about Superman, and about God. Uh, And some of these stories were like, uh, you know, Jimmy fell into a river and was swept away and grabbed onto a branch and prayed for God's help. But God was, uh, you know, on the other side of the world helping somebody else. Uh, I don't remember all the stories, but they read them these stories. And then they waited a, a certain amount of time and they asked them questions about what they recalled about the stories. And the majority of Christian folks recalled the deity being represented in a thoroughly anthropomorphic way as a human-sized, human-shaped entity located in a specific point in time and place. And then they did this experiment again with another group of people, asked you know, the same questions, but then, then they read them the stories. But then before they asked them the questions later on, they reminded them of their answers that they gave about their beliefs about deity. And then the anthropomorphic answers fell off because they had in their heads, huh. I'm supposed to believe this. This is what I said I believed. Right. I, better, I better agree with that. And so they kind of tempered the intuitive, the more natural, the more um, uh, automatic beliefs about the deity because orthodoxy was looking over their shoulder. They had orthodoxy breathing down their neck, and so the answers changed. And so when we think about um, orthodoxy, it's not so much it's not so much that that is how we that's the deity that's the most meaningful to us. It's that that is the conceptualization of deity that best serves the interests of the group. Hmm. Um, and I think that we would do well to figure out. What are we, you know, when we are publicly talking about deity, right? Uh, which one are we? Uh, which one are we prioritizing? Which one are we holding out in front? And are are we, uh, you know, shouting down other folks because of one conceptualization over another? Are we getting in fights about it? Um, <laughs> are we making things uh, more divisive, more uncomfortable for other people? Are we trying to change other people's minds? 
Uh, and it's, it's a difficult thing to do because the impulse to conform and to maintain or improve our standing within our social group is also very intuitive and very strong. Yeah. And so can make us, um, can make us hurt other people. Yeah. Uh, if, if it helps us for sure. So while we have a few minutes left, let's talk about, um, words and translations and like the Bible, like how we translate okay. things to get, you know, the Bible, <laughs> because obviously, you know, as again, and I'm not, an, I'm not well-educated. I have some college under my belt, but as I've been listening to people had the privilege to interview people like John Walton and other people that I really have enjoyed their work. It's very clear to me that, 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 that translating the Bible into different languages, in this case, English is really, it can be very tricky. And I think one of the words that I think of is, you know, there's a lot of debate right now around the word homosexual. You know, there, uh -huh. there, there's the project, the 1946 project, the movie, uh, and their argument is that the word homosexual never showed up until I think the 1940, 1946. Um, you know, and 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 how we interpret certain words kind of really have major impact. You know, mm -hmm. so I guess just because we we have a little bit left of time left let's kind of join maybe on that example like the word homosexual for example you know okay. as i know you've done a lot of tiktoks on it I've, I've watched your stuff on it it's very fascinating can you kind of tell us you know in in your studies is that an accurate translation like is is you know were the people who translated it just being nefarious like oh we just want to be homophobic <laughs> so homosexual or is there something kind of deeper going on there it is, there is something deeper going on there, but at the same time, I do think that the rendering homosexual is problematic for, uh, for a handful of reasons. But one, as, as I said before, we've always got to renegotiate our understanding. And hmm. in order to make this text meaningful, I think the translators <gasps> were looking for a framework that already existed, that was widely understood, that people would be able to understand and grasp easily. And rather than translate it literally as, you know, literally as something like men betters, um, which is confusing. We don't know exactly what that is a reference to. They right. just kind of punted to this pre-existing concept that was, it was a lot easier. However, it brought all this baggage to this text that is our modern baggage, not the baggage that was being handled by the folks who wrote down what was written down in Corinthians or in Leviticus. And so in that sense, I think it distorts. Because one of the things it does is creates the impression that this is referencing all homosexuality and all homosexuals. And it absolutely is not. In fact, it's not even representing all of the homosexual acts that are engaged in by only male homosexuals. It is referencing a, a subset of acts. Now, in the ancient world, that subset of acts was pretty much everything they understood, or at least was the main stuff they understood by um, that activity, because it was, it was uh, so aberrant uh, for at least for early Christians and for um, early Israelites and Judahites that they didn't have to refer to the whole thing. But we don't understand precisely what the concern was. And when we seek to reason for the authors of the Bible, you know, why it should be extended or restricted to a certain group or to all groups, 
we're not really doing justice to the text. We're just trying to use the text to serve our own interests. And this can, this can, can go both ways. This is not just something that, that homophobes engage in because we see a lot of this. Uh, I think there are well-meaning folks out there who, who say, oh, well, that referred to only certain cultic sexual activity. And I don't think there are data that support that. Or that refers only to pedophilia. I don't think there are data that support that either. And what and they're doing a very similar thing. They're trying to use the text to serve their own identity politics, which is a very natural thing to do. But what I have argued, and, and I'm working on a, a more long-form YouTube video on this, but I want to get it right, and so it's mm. taking some time, sure. um, is that this was not an enormous concern anciently. It was not something that was uh, always on everybody's mind. It's only referenced a couple of times. Um, and we don't know exactly why the acts that were prohibited were considered to be wrong. And if we just assume, well, it has to be, you know, because God said so, or because it's just wrong or immoral or, or whatever, whatever list of reasons we come up with, they're not going to be the same as the list they had anciently. Mm. But in order to extend the prohibition or the, the judgments beyond what they listed to what folks today want to list, we need to understand why they didn't list those other folks um, over whom we want to extend that judgment. Mm. And maybe, maybe uh, that's, that's probably not incredibly clear. <laughs> um, in Leviticus, and the word uh, arsenokite, which we find in, in Corinthians, the idea is it's prohibiting the act of uh, a, a male penetrating another male sexually. And so only one half of that equation is being uh, criminalized, vilified. Why not the other half? If we don't know that, if we don't know the answer to that question, what, on what grounds do we assume we can say, oh, well, he meant the other half as well? Hmm. Or on what grounds do we say, well, we can extend that prohibition to women as well? Hmm. Because in the Hebrew Bible, um, female homosexuals are never referenced at all uh, for good or ill. So uh, in order to try to say we're going to take this moral framework and we're going to extend it over this whole group, uh, we need to know if that's justified and we just don't have enough data from these texts to justify it. And so in the long run, all they're doing is saying, we want it to mean this because it's important to our group today. Hmm. All right, last question for you. And again, I just want to say, yeah. I really appreciate you making time and, and just sharing so much of your knowledge with us. It is incredibly thought-provoking. Um, and I'll be re-listening to this um, a couple of times. <laughs> and I mean, in a good way, there's just so much here that I just haven't, considered before. So you mentioned, you know, that, that, that the idea and the concept of deity is, has developed over time. It continues to develop. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned that, you know, we're doing that now in our own context. I mean, Scott McKnight from the blue parakeet, he puts it in a way that's like every generation of Christians have to interpret the Bible in their day in their way. It's kind of his point. I'm like, okay. Yeah. I like that. My question is, you know, from your vantage point with your, with your skill set. Can the Bible that we have be helpful in developing this, you know, the continuation of the concept of deity in a healthy way? Because I think a lot of people in my circles have seen what happens when it's done in an unhealthy way. 
you know, I track Christian nationalism. I'm very, I'm very tuned in to what people like Charlie Kirk are doing, how they're speaking at, at churches. And I'm like, okay, that seems really an unhealthy way of what I would argue is weaponizing the Bible. But oftentimes what I say is I don't want to become a fundamentalist all over again and, and weaponize <laughs> the Bible in a different way. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, from your vantage point with the, the data over dogma, so to speak, right, like on a data level, do you think that, 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 that there are ways to see the Bible as a source of wisdom for how we develop deity in a healthy way that, that, that does not draw more boundaries but is instead more inclusive and more open? I, I think there are ways to read it that that absolutely can increase inclusivity, cooperation uh, between between groups, and you know we see this in uh, liberation theology. I mm-hmm. think is one of the wonderful examples of how folks have deployed the Bible uh, in order to overcome uh, yeah. oppression and things like that. And and some of those theologians are among the most uh, insightful that that I've uh, that I've ever read. And, you know, slavery is a wonderful example where both the defense of slavery and some of the strongest condemnation of slavery came from people on both sides deploying the Bible, reading the Bible. And so because the text has no inherent, innate um, meaning, it can be deployed to do what people want it to do. And so I, I think it will always have... Uh, uses for good, and there will, all, will always be ways that it can be used for ill in order to serve people's uh, structuring of power and values over and against the interests of other groups. Uh, and and I, I would like people to, to better understand that this, the fact that it can be deployed for evil is not a reflection of any kind of inherent or innate evil any more than the fact that we can deploy language for evil is a reflection of some kind of moral judgment of the framework of language. It just right. is. And right. so um, it depends on, it depends on how we deploy it. It depends on what, uh, what lenses, what frameworks we bring to it and, and what we're trying to achieve. I tell people that all the time when they're, when they are looking for a good Bible translation or want to know how they should read the Bible. I say, well, it depends on what you're wanting to get out of it. You know what you want to get out of it. You can have a better idea how to approach it. And then you can pick the right resources. You can pick the right frameworks. You can pick the right tools in order to increase the odds that you'll get out of it what you are looking for. And if someone is looking to dominate another group or to play identity politics or boundary maintenance, you know, they're frequently going to find what they're looking for. Mm. If someone is looking for a way to increase, um, to make people happier, to make to increase cooperation, to uh, liberate the captive, yeah. uh, to declare you know um, somebody free, I think they frequently are going to find what they're looking for. Great. Well, Dan, honestly, uh, an honor, a pleasure to have you on. Um, you know, thank you so much. Really great stuff. Uh, where can people find you? You said you have a book coming out. Is it available for pre-order yet? What's what's the deal? It's not available for pre-order. It's going to be an open access book. Uh, the title is Deity and Divine Agency in the Hebrew Bible, Cognitive Perspectives. Uh, it will be out through SBL Press. That's Society of Biblical Literature Press. Uh, probably uh, the very beginning of 2023. And they, it'll be a print on demand for folks who want a hard copy. But the PDF will just be freely available for anybody to share in any way they see fit. 
but yeah, I'm on uh, at McClellan, uh, M-A-K-L-E-L-A-N, uh, on Instagram, on Twitter, and on TikTok. Uh, and Perfect. yeah, I can, I can usually be found, uh, in, uh, in one of those places, muddying the waters and, uh, and irritating people on all sides of whatever I'm talking about. <laughs> Kicking ass and taking names. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, again, I appreciate it. I'll, I'll put that stuff in the show notes. I hope we can talk again because, you know, there's just so many other, I think, uh, important topics to discuss with you. So keep in touch and, uh, we'll you know, I'm, I'm sure we'll make something happen in the future. Yeah, that'd be wonderful. I'd enjoy it. Great.